This is our official podcast of the WCD. We are only five weeks away from the World Congress of Dermatology, which will be held in Singapore in July. I am Dr. Etienne Wang from the National Skin Centre of Singapore, and I will be your host for this podcast. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. In this podcast, I speak with dermatologists and skin researchers from all over the world to talk about all things dermatology. And today, my co-host Ellie is back to discuss further education in dermatology. Ellie, I hear that you are doing an MBA. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so I've actually just finished my first half a year of the MBA and I've been getting quite a lot of questions as to why I chose to do it. Um, I think when I first started it, I was just finished residency and also finished a coursework for my part-time research master's. And I was looking to learn more through something formal because I'm not great with like those self-directed kind of episodic courses that have no imposed pressure on I like to finish. So at the time, I was deciding between pursuing a PhD versus another master's. And because, you know, my research interest in behavioral health is not very sciencey and it's quite undifferentiated, I wanted to do something that was broad across a few new fields, but yet with some concrete usable facts. And one of my mentors happened to be a business prof at John Hopkins University. I really admire how he can provide a different perspective to my questions, and he encouraged me to consider the part-time online MBA program at John Hopkins, and so here I am. <laughs> wow. So what are you learning in your MBA that's actually directly relevant to your work as a dermatologist? Mm. Um, one of the recent things I learned in my last module on corporate strategy is this concept of a red ocean versus a blue ocean strategy. And it's used to understand business competition, but I found it very relevant to, for example, my research. So, for example, a red ocean strategy is competing in an existing traditional marketplace For example, I like to do quality of life research and a red ocean strategy is to do standard quality of life research but with greater sample size, collect more data points or study in a different population and this would help you compete in this already saturated market. But in contrast, a blue ocean strategy shifts away from an existing market space into an uncontested new market space. So how do you do that? You know, it involves looking across different industries and strategic groups. You provide innovative and complementary offerings rather than trying to maximize the value of an existing offering. So for example, in that quality of life research, a blue ocean strategy may be, for example, incorporating physical data from wearables or looking at economic spending data or looking at how healthcare systems contribute to quality of life um, impairment and something that, you know, draw upon new techniques, new offerings to reach a marketplace that is new and that sort of provides a unique value proposition and there's less competition and therefore greater room for growth. Oh, wow. So, so it really helps you to structure your thinking and your approach to your future career. I think, I think that's very amazing. Do you encourage other dermatologists to also pursue an MBA? And what should their ambitions be if they really want to do an MBA? I would say um, it's really great to continue learning more because especially when we finish residency, sometimes the learning curve is not very steep and it's easy to get comfortable in what we're in. Um, I would say an MBA or whether some other learning program really depends. An MBA is very broad and a lot of people tell me that the value of an MBA is networking, which I agree is really lost through an online part-time program. But the good thing about an MBA is that the knowledge is really broad and maybe it'll be useful for some people who desire that kind of knowledge. But it's really not in-depth into a particular field. Um, yourself, are you thinking of pursuing any additional studies? I mean, you already have a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly what you said. So after my residency, I did feel that what we learned and what we were already doing wasn't 
enough and I think every doctor should try to um, you know increase their knowledge and increase their experience to actually give their patients the best possible treatment for anything so when I chose my field of hair around the time uh, a lot of the treatments for hair were very old okay things like minoxidil finasteride and even for alopecia areata we didn't have a new treatment for all these things for decades and I think this is you know it's ripe for research and true enough during my um, PhD itself there's so many new treatments that have come up for all different hair diseases now so I think looking into the future this is just going to keep going and I think we really need to be on the cusp of that innovation to, to be able to bring the best possible treatment to our patient at any given time and I think in, for your MBA it's the same okay because you're you're really looking at managing patients managing diseases managing your research in a very novel and very um, integrated way is that is that fair to say yeah for sure um, and you know just building upon what you say I think everyone is different and our interests are all different so you know it's no one size fit all and maybe for some people it's not through formal education but learning maybe in the form of like clinical practice or just something else and I encourage everyone to just think about what their interests are and how they may pursue further learning in various ways that may not be so standard or traditional. Yeah, yeah. So that's very, very wise words. And I think we, we should all strive to, you know, improve ourselves at every single point in our lives. So you know, you're never too old to learn. <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much, Ellie. And uh, you have a good weekend. And I'll speak to you next time and see you at the WCD. See you. Bye-bye. And don't forget, don't, don't forget you're playing the harp, right? For one of the social events. We'll be, we'll be, yes, for we'll the... Be seeing, <laughs> we'll be seeing this overachiever dermatologist with an MBA. And, oh, and I think you're doing PhD too soon, uh, you tell me. <laughs> playing yeah. the harp very beautifully at the WCD. <laughs> yes, we'll see you. Go. We'll see everyone there at WCD. Okay, bye. Bye. <laughs> bye. <laughs> And now I'd like to welcome to the podcast Dr. Rachel Watson, who was the Professor of Cutaneous Science at the University of Manchester before she was appointed Executive Director for both the A-Star Skin Research Laboratory and the Skin Research Institute of Singapore. At the University of Manchester, Rachel was instrumental in the development of the MSc in Skin Aging and Aesthetic Medicine, and she has served on many research committees and publication committees as well. Welcome, uh, uh, Rachel, to the podcast. Actually, it's lovely to be talking to you. And welcome to Singapore. Thank you. Yes, I think I'm settling in okay. <laughs> uh, before we start, what attracted you to Singapore and your, and your current position at um, ASTAR? Yeah, it's a really good question. So let me tell you a little bit about myself. So I've always been interested in ageing. And then when I was just finishing my PhD, I had the opportunity to move into skin. So I've been working really on ageing in skin for the past 28 or 30 years. We've done loads of work in Caucasian skin and we've done quite a bit of work in African-American skin. But the one population that I've not really been able to interrogate is, is the skin of Asians. So that was a real driver for me coming here. Mm, well, but they say Asians don't age, right? So a Asians don't raisin. <laughs> <laughs> so it's different manifestations of ageing. So yeah, every yeah. ethnicity has, it, has its own particular um, thing that they don't like about themselves as they age. So in, you know, in Caucasians, it's wrinkles. Um, it's a in Asian populations, it's changes in pigmentation or the yes, fact that exactly. the, mm -hmm. you know, the, the complexion isn't uniform. And then in black skin, it's hyperpigmentation. I guess it all, it all depends where you're from and what you care about most. But the bottom line is there's going to be an aging phenotype. And that's what I'm interested in looking at. What do you think are the strengths of skin and hair research in Singapore? Oh, wow. That's a great question. There are so many. <laughs> so I was really pleased when I came here. Um, 
to look around the first time because the infrastructure in Singapore is amazing. You know, we're a relatively small country, but the, the level of expertise that we have here is, is enormous. So, you know, we can look at the more basic sciences, the histological assessments of skin are second to none. And the types of microscopes that we have here are brilliant. We can, we can interrogate the skin in so many different ways. And then if you think more about the, the more perhaps high-end techniques, sort of spatial transcriptomics, you know, we've got spin-out companies in Singapore that we just don't have access to in the UK, or we don't have access to so easily at least. So it's a bit of a combination, infrastructure, technical ability, and also um, being able to integrate with both clinical colleagues and colleagues at our medical schools. So I think that they're sort of, you know, unique selling points for what we have in, in Singapore. Let's not forget the industry as well. well. There's quite a huge yeah, presence there here. Yeah, there is. I mean, yeah. we are really a, a, an, an innovation hub for Southeast Asia. So, you know, while I had lots of experience in the UK, dealing with these large multinational companies. Most of them have got a footprint in Singapore. So, I, I, and I also I think what's changing is that we're seeing that skin research shouldn't be done solely in white populations. So the idea that we're broadening out our demographics, that we're looking at skin, regardless of what its pigmentation status is, to make sure that either cosmetics or drugs are fit for purpose in all populations, I think is really powerful and really important. You've been here for about um, uh, yeah, months. three how months. First of March, yeah, I started. Three months. Yeah, yeah. Three months. Well, I'm nearly up to my, wow, uh, okay. my quarter year. So I'm, I'm still <laughs> learning very much and still trying to make um, connections with people. And you know, it's going to be a work in progress for the foreseeable future. But it's, but it's really exciting. What do you think are the challenges you see for yourself in the next few so years? So I think like most um, academic and industry facing institutions, you know, we are dealing, we have to deal with money. So the science is never a problem. The science is always um, uplifting, actually. What's, what's difficult is managing the management around doing the science. So making sure that people are appropriately funded, that we are drawing down good research grants that we're engaging with industry on impactful projects. So they're the things that sort of may cause headaches in the future, but we just need to face any issues head on. We, we discussed earlier that one of your re pet research topics is ageing. And of course, this is a kind of more covered in aesthetic dermatology. Why is it important to have basic research for aesthetic dermatology? These two things don't usually mix. Yeah, well, I think what has happened over the past 20 years is there's been actually a sea change in how companies um, approach their research. We're all familiar with the marketeers and what the marketeers say and what the marketeers do. And you'll have noticed, you know, in adverts, you know, 80% of our cohort believe that this product does them some benefit. And then you look at the fine print and it's, you know, tested on 20 individuals. So not really rigorous. So what I was trying to do in, in Manchester was really bring the rigor to appearance dermatology. So when we're looking at lines and wrinkles, for example, in a Caucasian population, how do we know we're seeing effacement? Do we see it clinically, but is that a moisturisation effect? Or are we affecting actual t tissue change through what we're putting on our skin? I was lucky to work with a number of personal care companies who really were very forward thinking, and they wanted to add additional rigour to the claims that their marketing people made. So, so using that as a backdrop, I was able to uh, design and implement a, a, an in vivo proof of principle assay, which looks at dermal skin repair. 
So you may know that one of the major hallmarks of, of photo damage in a, in a white population is um, solar elastosis and loss of mm -hmm. connectivity of the elastic fibres. So in this short-term proof of concept assay, I was able to show that all transretinoic acid, which is the gold standard treatment for photoaging, actually repairs the elastic fibre network in the skin. And it does this by rejuvenating or enhancing the behaviours of the basal keratinocytes. So it gets the basal keratinocytes to wake up and start making the right proteins to repair. So knowing we can do that with a drug, we then transferred that technology into testing whether cosmetics or cosmetic ingredients had any ability to do what they said they did. And when we started out, mm. we firmly believed that we wouldn't be able to show that. <laughs> uh, but science never goes the way you think it does. And actually what we saw was that with some cosmetics, not all, but with some, we saw the same effects that we were seeing with all transretinoic acid. That mm. research was shown on the BBC's Horizon programme and it changed the way UK dermatology or UK cosmetic science was done in the UK. So wouldn't that make those cosmetic compounds drug? Not necessarily. So it depends where the mm -hmm. action happens. So if it's engaging the keratinocytes and the keratinocytes are then producing something which is of benefit, but the compounds stay in the epidermis, it is not a drug. If it crosses the DEJ and penetrates and has an impact on the fibroblasts, then it is a drug. So again, it's to do with where the mode of action is, hits. And for all transretinoic acid, it sits firmly in the epidermis. Mm, wow, that's very interesting. And I think um, that definitely this is something that we'll be seeing a lot of in an upcoming WCB. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and it, I'm thrilled to be here at the time because, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a long way to come for lots of the European uh, dermatologists. But I think it's going to be a fantastic meeting. And it's well supported across the board for from skin pharma and also for personal care. So I'm very much yes. looking forward to speaking and sharing sessions there. It'll be great to interact with clinical colleagues from all over the world and to introduce my new colleagues here in Singapore to people that I know globally. And in your three months in Singapore, what have you found that you love about Ooh. Singapore? What's your favourite thing well, about I do Singapore? Like the, <laughs> it's a little ironic, but I do love the sunshine. <laughs> so for someone who's interested in photo damage, I do like the weather here, I've got to say. There's no such thing as a healthy tan. I appreciate that and I am assiduous about putting on my Factor 50. But it's nice to be out in the warm climate and not the cold uh, British rain. And then the other thing, I guess, is the greenery. I really love gardening. Mm -hmm. I really love birds. So to see a whole different set of nature is really uh, wonderful to me. Oh, have you been to the bird paradise? Well, not yet. They were moving it as I as I came onto yes, the island, so I didn't know. I didn't wasn't aware whether it was live yet. But yeah, that's definitely. It's a new bird park. Yes, it's open. Yeah, yes, I'll yes, definitely go. going there. <laughs> so um, it was great. We went down to the zoo, and we've done all the touristy bits and pieces. And I can't tell you how many times I've walked around the botanic gardens. But I absolutely love the fact that we're in a verdant, green, and luscious country. How about the food? Oh, the food's amazing. It, it, the fact that you can go, <laughs> you can go to a different restaurant every night and never be bored. I think. It's fantastic. It um, doesn't do great, great things for your waistline. However, the variety is wonderful. And the one thing which I have discovered, which I love, is um, is is crab in the pepper sauce. Oh yes. Okay. You must. We must get you more of that during the WCB <laughs> yeah, then. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. Black pepper crab. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today, uh, Rachel. My pleasure. And I'll see you at a yeah. conference. I think it's going to be yeah, a great I'll one. Yeah. I'll see you at the WCD. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Okay, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> bye bye. bye. bye.
And that was our official podcast of WCD. And if you haven't registered, please do. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram at WCD2023 Singapore. And check out the WCD website, WCD2023Singapore.org for more updates and content on the WCD. And until next time, stay safe and use sunblock.